You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Go with me to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, and we'll be in John chapter 14 this morning. John chapter 14. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, Merry Christmas. We'd love to give you one. We've got Bibles on those tables in the back of the room, and you can take one now, or you can take one on your way out today, but that's a gift to you, no strings attached. Uh, Start reading that Bible, just see what happens. Just see what happens. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So we stand to show we're eager to hear from the Lord this morning. Hang on, is it just me or is our screen a little janky here? Is that, does that look off to you guys over here especially? Yeah? Here, let me, hang on. Time out. Is that better? All right. Play ball. Here we go. John 14, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Listen carefully. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning with a little cultural analysis. Um, I've said each week that this time of year especially, always so, but this time of year especially, we are bombarded by these pictures and promises of the good life everywhere we go. In the opening week of this series, I gave the example of your local grocery store, and we talked about the good life according to your grocery store, especially according to the checkout line, that gauntlet that we have to all walk through that gallery of print media and images and assortment of other items. And if we examine that carefully, we will see a picture and a promise of the good life. And it has seven pieces. Do you remember this? It begins with intimacy. You can't possibly have the good life, our culture through the grocery store tells us, unless you have a hyperactive sex life. That's where it all starts. You can't possibly be happy if you're celibate, Or if you're committed to one person for life, can't possibly be happy. Now, how do you get this experimental sex life, this hyperactive sex life? Well, you have to be beautiful, of course, physically beautiful. Close to that, closely related to that is the idea of health. You have to have a certain type of physique, certain measurements, that magic number on the scale that sets the limit of health and beauty. Fourth, information. If you're going to have the good life, you have to have information. I mean, come on. We're modern people. And not only do you need information, you need it quickly. You need it with convenience. Whatever else you might want, with convenience. Fast food, on-demand viewing, real-time reporting. And then sixth, wealth. You can have all of these things if you just have enough money or a nice credit limit. And then finally, what does it all lead to? Celebrity. See, when you have all of these things in place, then you will have achieved that most coveted status of our day. You will be a celebrity. You will be happy, and people will want to be you. Pictures and promises of the good life according to the checkout line at our local grocery store. Now, here's another example. I want you to see another one. 
I want you to think today about the mall. For those of you who still shop at malls, picture Tyrone Square or Countryside Mall in Clearwater. Just pick your favorite mall. Visualize it and let's spend just a moment analyzing it. Jamie Smith, who's a philosopher, has thought deeply about this. And he tells us that if we look at the mall carefully, we will see the mall tells a story. And with all of its power, it tries to draw us into that story. And the story goes something like this. It has three parts. It begins with the implicit idea of brokenness. See, we have been told that we're broken long before we go to the mall. We've heard it. We've heard it everywhere in the ads. We've heard it in our social media feed. Even in the billboards, we've heard there is something missing in you. We see these images, these people, hip and happy, sexy and stylish at all of the ads. And we looked at them and we begin to say, well, I, I don't look like that. My life doesn't look like that. There must be something broken in me. And so we go to the mall or Amazon or wherever you shop these days. We go into the mall. Now, if you actually enter the physical mall, you'll notice that as soon as you enter, you'll see more images. But now, they're not just these pictures like on the ads. They're life-sized icons. They're called mannequins. And they're everywhere. Life-sized icons of the good life. This is what the perfect body looks like, the perfect wardrobe. This is what you're missing. This is why you're broken. That's the first part of the story. Now, the second part has to do with community. The mall provides a sense of community, or is it really more competition? See, here's what happens when we shop. We shop because we're broken. We shop often with other people, don't we? With family, with friends. They come along with us at times. And then we go into the stores, and here's what happens. Oh, he's buying a new Apple device. Well, my Apple device is two years old. I haven't updated for a while. That Apple device is his ticket to the good life. I work just as hard as he does. I deserve the good life too. Competition. Now the third part, and the most important one that I want you to see, the mall offers a promise of redemption through consumption. We're broken, therefore we shop. With the promise that there is this object, there is this something out there that you're lacking, and if only you find it, if only you can pay for it, then you will be happy. Then you will have that good life that you've been searching for. It's the promise of redemption through consumption. The good life according to the grocery store, the good life according to the mall. I could keep going. The good life according to the sports arena. The good life according to the movie theater. I'm belaboring the point to help you see that everywhere we go, everywhere we look, we are bombarded by these pictures and promises of the good life. Now, why is this tactic so effective on us? Why is it so effective? Why is it that on a day like today, you can hear me talk about this and you can say to yourself, oh, I see it now. I see how the mall tells that story, how it tries to draw me in. I'm not falling for that anymore. And then tomorrow, we go right back to shopping. Why is this tactic so effective? Because deep down in our souls, so many of us feel dissatisfied. We do feel broken. We do feel that something is missing. We do feel that there is a better life out there somewhere. And listen to me, if you feel that way, you're right. You're right. The longing deep within you for something better, it's right. But the problem is you've been looking in the wrong place. You've been looking in the wrong place. 
Your heart, your deepest you, it will be satisfied only when you come to Jesus and walk with him. He is the only one who can fulfill the promise of the good life, the abundant life, as Scripture calls it. In this series, we've been looking at the Gospel of John together, and we've been looking in particular at what's called the seven I am sayings. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the blank with a metaphor that teaches us something important about who Jesus is and what he came to bring for us. Now today, we're looking at the sixth I am saying, by far, by far the most controversial one. You could have been here for every other week of this series and been fine so far, and today you're going to panic or you're going to be very uncomfortable. Now, each week of the series, I have said something like what I said just a few moments ago. Your heart, your deepest you, it will be satisfied only when you come to Jesus and when you walk with him. But why do I have to use that word only? Only Jesus solely Jesus, exclusively Jesus. Come on. Now, if you hear that and it makes you squirm a little or maybe you're vehemently opposed to the claim, it could be, could be, because you have some faulty presuppositions. I want to begin today by discussing just a few of those faulty presuppositions. I'll mention them. You see if you hold them. Then, second, I want us to look at Christianity's central claim that we find here in John 14. And then finally, I want us to think about some reasonable responses. So faulty presuppositions, Christianity's central claim, and reasonable responses. That's where we're going. First, faulty presuppositions. Two of them that are worth mentioning and spending just a few minutes unpacking together. The first one is that all religions are the same This is a a common sentiment today. Maybe you have run into someone who thinks this. Maybe you think this yourself. That all religions really are teaching the same thing and we're all going to arrive in the same place in the end. All the various religions of the world are like paths that all lead to the summit of the same mountain. Or maybe you've heard the, the ancient Hindu parable about the three blind men. Do you know this one? The first blind man goes and he touches the elephant's trunk and he says, oh, it seems like a snake. The second blind man touches the elephant's ear and he says, oh, it seems like a fan. The third blind man touches the elephant's leg and he says, it seems like a tree trunk. Each man has his limited impression of the one elephant. And sometimes people say this is the way the world religions work. Each religion has its limited understanding of the one big truth. Now, at first glance, that sounds like a respectful way to think about the religions of the world, doesn't it? But if you think a bit harder, you'll see it's actually a very disrespectful way. It's terribly disrespectful because even a surface reading of the world religions reveals certain mutually exclusive claims. Think, for example, about the three great monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Christianity claims that Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. Judaism claims that Jesus died and he stayed dead. Islam claims that Jesus didn't die. He simply went into heaven. These three religions do not teach the same thing. To say that they do, to say that all of the different religions of the world essentially are the same, is to adopt a patronizing posture that doesn't take seriously these different beliefs. 
They're not the same. They're not. Now, here's a second faulty presupposition. Christianity is intolerant. Or maybe Christianity is uniquely intolerant. Now, we definitely need to spend a few minutes on this one. First, we have to understand that tolerance means today something that it did not mean in previous decades. There's an old tolerance and a new tolerance. The old tolerance focused mostly on people. Tolerance used to mean an openness to people who hold different opinions and positions. And that openness was expressed by a willingness to sit down with them, a willingness to listen sincerely, to think critically, to discuss and even debate, but always with civility. That's what tolerance used to mean. Now, the modern tolerance, tolerance today, it doesn't focus as much on people, it focuses more on ideas. And specifically, the modern tolerance goes like this. Hold whatever ideas you want, just don't critique mine. Hold whatever ideas you want, anything, just don't talk about my ideas, my beliefs, they're off limits to you. So you see, with the modern tolerance, there's actually far less listening far less healthy discussion, far less comparison of competing truth claims. Because today, as soon as you start talking about something that someone else believes, you're labeled intolerant. Even if it's with the utmost respect. As soon as you say, I affirm this and not that, you are labeled intolerant. Now track with me on this. This is important. If that's the definition of tolerance we're going to work with, then you have to see that we are all unavoidably intolerant. All of us. It's not the case that Christianity is uniquely intolerant. The atheist says, I affirm that there is no God. Therefore, the atheist is intolerant of the theist. He's saying, I believe this and not that. The religious pluralist says, I affirm that there are many paths up the same mountain. The religious pluralist is intolerant of the person who says there's only one true way. So you see, if this is our definition of tolerance today, folks, we're all, we're all, we're all intolerant. So if you want to say that Christianity is intolerant, fine. But don't pretend that we're the only ones. We are all unavoidably intolerant. So where do we go from here? Well, if it's true that all of the world religions are different, that they all have their own set of truth claims, then the most reasonable thing for you to do is to take a careful look at those truth claims and decide for yourself which one is most plausible. I want to help you with that. At least I want to help you get started. Let's look now at Christianity's central truth claim. What is it? It's right here in John 14. I want to read the passage for us one more time. John 14, 1-6. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And listen carefully to what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, Thomas, 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 I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, I want to bring two questions to this passage. First, what exactly is Jesus claiming? And then second, why should we believe him? Why? First, the what. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's on his way to the cross. And he says to them, gentlemen, I'm leaving. I am departing. I am going to prepare a place for you. And one day I will come again. Now, Thomas, one of the disciples, I love Thomas because he's always listening. He's always asking questions. That's a good sign. Thomas hears this and he thinks, but Jesus, we don't know where you're going. You've told us you're leaving. You haven't told us exactly where you're going. And Thomas wants to follow him. He's looking for a road map. Where are you going, Jesus, so we can come with you? And Jesus looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the way. In other words, Jesus claims to be the only way to God. I am the way, the truth the life. Jesus is the one way to God the Father, the one revealer of the truth, the truth about this world, how it all works, who we are, how we got here. He is the one life, the one who can provide resurrection life, eternal life. Now these things, truth, Life, life beyond the grave. These are some of the great aspirations of humanity. And Jesus claims to be the only one who can provide them because Jesus claims to be God. Jesus is the only one who can bring us to God because he is God. That's his claim. We talked about this last week. You remember the story of Lazarus? I said this last week, and if you don't get this, you don't get Christianity. Jesus is the embodiment of his mission. I'm going to say that again so that it really sinks in. Listen, Jesus is the embodiment of his mission. In other words, Jesus is what he came to do. He is what he came to do. Now, who is Jesus? According to the Bible, he's the God-man. He's the God-man. Fully God and fully human in one person. He is the unity. He is the reconciliation that our entire world needs. You see, the biblical story goes like this. In the beginning, God created all things, including humanity. And we were created to live in fellowship with God, but we're prideful beings. We're prideful beings. We rejected God. We went our own way. And so we were separated from God, from his loving and life-giving presence, from the peaceful and purposeful and permanent life that God provides great separation. So what we need now is reconciliation, restoration. Jesus shows us that. He is that in himself. Jesus is the union, the reconciliation we need. Why then did Jesus come to earth? He shows us. In who he is, he shows us. He came to bring God to man and man to God, reconciled once again. To bring to us what we lost in the beginning, to restore that fractured fellowship between us and our Creator. Jesus is the only one who can restore that fractured fellowship because of who He is, because He is the God-man. That's His claim. Now, why should we believe it? Are there good reasons to believe Jesus when He says that He's God? To believe Jesus when He says, I am the way, the truth, the life? Indeed, there are. Think about what we've learned in this series alone. We have seen Jesus again and again perform these miraculous signs. 
We have seen Jesus take a few pieces of food and multiply that food, a lunchable as it were, and multiply that lunchable so that there's enough food to feed an enormous crowd. Only the one, only the one present in the beginning, the creator, only the one who invented the process of the harvest, the process of reproduction, only he could take this small amount of food and multiply it into such a large sum for the crowd, could speed up the harvest process like this. We've seen Jesus heal a man who was born blind. Only the one who was present in the beginning, the creator, the one who created everything out of nothing, only he could take someone who had never known sight, who had never known light, and provide it. And then last week we saw the story of Lazarus. We saw where Jesus raised a man who had died. And at the end of John's gospel, Jesus himself will be raised. Only God could take the most permanent thing imaginable, death, and make it temporary. We have good reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But wait a minute, you say. These are all stories in the gospels. How do we know the gospels are reliable? It's a fair question. I'm glad you asked. I did a whole sermon on this last year. I think it was about this time last year called Questioning Christianity. It's on our YouTube channel. Go listen to it if you'd like. I'm short on time this morning. Let me just give you one good reason. One reason that we should believe the Gospels are reliable. Because the Gospels are far too early to be fiction. They're far too historically early to be fiction. Here's what I mean. Let's say that I tell you a story. A story about what happened on 9-11. But I tell the story like this. It was a terrible day, one of the most heartbreaking days in our nation's history. Terrorists hijacked airplanes. They flew them into the Twin Towers. The towers collapsed. People lost their lives that day. But then something miraculous happened. Within a few hours, somehow, some way, the towers were raised. It was a miracle. They They emerged from the ashes and they rebuilt themselves. Now, if I tell the story that way, what are you going to do? You're going to say, wait a minute. That's not how it happened. I remember that day. I saw it with my own eyes. That's not how it happened. Now, here's what I'm getting at. If you're going to fabricate a story, if you're going to embellish details, you must wait until there are no living memories of the actual events. You're not going to believe my story. Why? Because it happened 20 years ago. And most of us were alive then. And we remember seeing it in some way. We were witnesses ourselves. My story will never get off the ground because there are too many living witnesses of the actual event. The earliest gospel we have was written 30 years after Jesus was died and raised. 30 years. It's not much of a difference between the 20 years of you and 9-11, right? If these stories were all made up, they never would have gotten off the ground. There were far too many living memories. We have good reasons to believe the Gospels. We have good reasons to believe Jesus is who he says he is. The God-man. The way, the truth, the life. So where do we go from here? Well, in closing, let me give you a couple of reasonable responses. In light of what we've learned today, here's how you could respond. I think there are three reasonable ways, and one, 
not so reasonable. Let's start with the one that's not so reasonable. I think the one thing you simply cannot say about Jesus is that he was a great human teacher. That really is the only unreasonable response. C.S. Lewis, in probably his most famous book ever, Mere Christianity, puts it like this. Let me just give you his words. Here's what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus' claims are far too extreme, far too extreme. You can't just say, he was a good teacher, and he's not really relevant for my life. That is unreasonable. What then are the reasonable conclusions, the reasonable responses? Well, there's three of them. If we're honest, there's three. The first one is, you could choose to reject it all. I'm hopeful you won't do this, but it is one of the options before you. You could shut him up as a fool, like Lewis says. You could say, this man was a lunatic. He believed he was God, but obviously he wasn't, and you can reject him outright. Now, the second response is you could receive Jesus if you've not done so. If you believe his claims, if you believe the things we've talked about today, you can receive Jesus by faith. It really is that simple. Don't complicate it. Don't complicate it. Believe in him. Be baptized. Celebrate communion with us this Advent season. Sign up for the December 15th starting point class and we will help you find a small group Bible study so that you can begin growing in your understanding and application of the gospel. We come to Jesus and then we walk with him in this new life that he provides for us, this abundant life. Now there's one other. Lewis doesn't mention this one in his quote, but I think it's worth pointing out. The other reasonable response is, you could continue to research, continue thinking, continue asking your questions. Maybe you're not yet fully convinced, you're curious, you're skeptical, you're not yet ready to believe. What I want to say to you then is, why don't you belong? Belong. You are welcome here. Maybe nobody's ever said that to you before. You are welcome at Faith Church. You and your questions. Bring them along with you. Jump into one of our connection groups. They're all listed on our website. Get to know some flesh and blood Christians. See, another good reason to believe that Jesus is who he says he is is the testimony of Christians. Lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So to my skeptical friends out there, get to know some flesh and blood Christians. Watch them. Watch them. And Christians, show them. Show them.
the power of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this opportunity to open it together this morning. As we think about the claims of Christianity, as we think about what Jesus says, what Jesus did, I pray this morning that you are working in hearts, revealing truth, drawing people to yourself. We truly believe that Jesus Christ is the one hope for the world. The only one who can reconcile us to the God who created us. The only one who can transform our lives, bringing greater purpose, forgiveness. Work in our hearts this day. Lord, this time of year is busy, so much happening. We want to slow down and focus on the gospel. As we prepare our hearts to come to your table to celebrate communion, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for our pride and selfishness. The times that we have not loved you, God, and not loved our neighbor the way you teach us to. Forgive us for those hateful words we said this week. That time we lost our temper. That thought that came into our minds, we know it was wrong. Forgive us, Lord. You know us. You know us deep down to the bottom. And the forgiveness you bring us, it goes deep down all the way to the bottom. We claim that promise in your word that when we confess our sins like this, you are gracious. You forgive always. We claim that promise. We claim that little line in the New Testament that says, even when we are unfaithful, God, you are faithful. You are faithful. We celebrate that today in Jesus' name. Amen.